0: Good evening. Welcome. Welcome to the London School of Economics for tonight's event, which forms a part of our LSE festival called Shape the World, which is running this entire week, a series of public events to think about how the social sciences can contribute to a better world. My name is Meenu Shafiq, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science, and we are delighted to have you all here today. We have a, a wonderful panel this evening, uh, and I'm going to introduce them starting from the very end, uh, where we have Brenda Trinoden, who is the a partner at PwC, and the global chair of the 30% Club, which as many of you will know, will, is, uh, is a group that is, at, is doing a huge amount of activism around increasing the proportion of women in senior positions uh, in the corporate sector. After Brenda, we have Irshad Ahmad, who is the head of Institutional Europe and a member of the European Executive Committee of Alliance Global Investors. After that, we have Teresa Parker, who is the president of EMEA and responsible for Northern Trust's business and regulatory affairs in the region. Next to her is uh, Richard Nesbitt, who's CEO of the Global Risk Institute in Financial Services, visiting professor at the Rotman School of Management and retired chief operating officer of the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce. And then next to that, next to Richard, uh, are the two leaders of uh, the Inclusion Initiative, which I will talk about momentarily. Uh, Karina Robinson, who's the founding co-director of the Inclusion Initiative, and she's also the founder and CEO of Robinson Hamro and the current master of the Worshipful Company of International Bankers. And next to Karina, we have Grace Lorden, who is Associate Professor in Behavioral Sciences at the London School of Economics and founding director of the Inclusion Initiative. Tonight, we're going to talk about how inclus- having an inclusive workforce offers companies a distinct competitive advantage. Now, the business case is fairly compelling. An inclusive workforce enhances profits, increases innovation, promotes business growth and employee well-being. Companies with a diverse and inclusive workforce respond better to the needs and demands of global clients and corporations, and have a huge comparative advantage in recruiting talent from places like the London School of Economics. But having an inclusive workforce is also a very hard thing to do. There is much good intent, but not a lot of rigor. And what we want to do tonight is talk about rigor. The panel will discuss a, a recent report called Inclusion in the City, a report that gives practical insights from behavioral sciences about how, pro, what the problems are and the solutions to inclus- and having an inclusive workforce. And it is done by people who know the city best, the very own talent that works there. This evening, I can also announce that the inclusion initiative will be formally launched here at the LSE in November, and we are incredibly excited to be hosting it. This new research program will be a partnership between world-class academics, leading corporations in finance and professional services, and visionary business leaders who want to leverage insights from behavioral science and develop really practical ways to get all of the best of all of the talent that they have working for them to the benefit of the bottom line. Now, for those of you who are Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for tonight's event is hashtag shape the world or hashtag LSE festival and at LSE underscore T-I-I. <laughs> okay. oh, thank God I don't use Twitter anyway. <laughs> I'll ask you to please put your phones on silent because we will be recording the event and making it available as a podcast. So I'm going to invite the speakers to, uh, to, to make presentations one by one and then we will invite comments from the audience. And I'm going to ask Grace Louden to start us off and she will talk about the methodology and philosophy behind the Inclusion in the City paper. Grace.
1: Um, Good evening. Thank you so much for coming on this rainy evening. When I saw that it was raining outside I wondered how many people would turn up, so it's fantastic to see such a great turnout, I really appreciate it. Um, This evening you've come to hear about behavioural science insights and what it has to say about inclusion at work and thankfully I think when it comes to inclusion behavioural science has a lot to say on this topic. These days we do a lot of work which involves collaborating with others. So, Within the financial and professional services we often sit together to assess risk. We sit together to be more innovative, to come up with creative solutions for our customers. Um, and it might surprise you to know that when we sit in groups and individuals and deliberate, we often bump up against many more biases than we do than when we make des- decisions on an individual level, which sounds really, really odd. But very often when we put groups together, they're not, uh, they're not greater than the sum of the parts and they're not, they're not even the sum of the parts. And I'm not talking to you about toxic work environments. I'm talking to you also about cultures that we tend to label as good when we think about looking at qualitative research that does that, when we look at happiness, when we look at job satisfaction. And I think the reason that kind of underlies that is when we come together as groups as individuals, we're much happier or much more comfortable deliberating solutions where we all have shared information, where we all know what's going on in the room. And very often we shy away from the um, the outlier idea or the kind of innovative idea that comes from the corner. Um, The Inclusion initiative at the LSE will launch in November, as Manusha said, and it's motivated by our belief that actually when we increase inclusion within firms, we not only make workers happier, but we also improve things like P&L, bottom line, we reduce behavioural risk, we make people more creative, we make people more innovative, and it might seem odd for you to have a behavioural scientist stand here and say to you that I'm building a research unit based on a belief. Because it is true that there is research that's out there that links inclusion to these outcomes that I've just described, but that research is, on the whole, largely correlational. And I think the one thing that the Inclusion Initiative will do at the LSE is move towards more rigorous and relevant frameworks and really think about the causal link between inclusion and these outcomes both across firms and within firms. So when we thought about the Inclusion Initiative myself and Karina, we really wanted it to be a bilateral conversation with industry. And in the spirit of that, I did something that I've never done before. I talk to the stakeholders of my research before I actually did the research, so normally I go and I give them my findings. So Karina and I, together, uh, conducted a qualitative research study where we went and met four, 40 senior research leaders in the City of London. So we had six CEOs, seven others on executive committees, 20 others who were managing directors or senior income generators in the firms they work, four representatives from the first line of defence, and three representatives from senior human resources. Each person represented a major financial and professional services firm in the City of London, spanning investment banking, retail banking, data, law, consulting and wealth management and I have to say I learned an incredible amount during this listening tour. The footprint of these firms also spreads across the the world which means that the work that we do here at the LSE could actually have a footprint that also reaches across the world. We added to that by doing round tables. We had three round tables, 114 participants from across the financial professional services, all different levels. And then I also went and spoke to 30 people who are at the very beginning of the pipeline, choosing strategically people who represent different ethnicities, different socioeconomic backgrounds, and different genders. And the idea behind all of this was to get the people who we were talking to to identify the obstacles that they thought faced inclusion in their place of work. And that I would then come with the behavioral science insights that I know from the academic literature and also from doing consultancy for a long time within firms and suggest these as potential solutions for these obstacles. So we launched a report today that essentially will show you what the the 10 most common obstacles were and also what the actions are that we're recommending in the hopes that firms would not only roll them out but would also quantify the effects and come back and tell us what's working well. Um, So in the spirit of the inclusion initiative, I'm not going to stop my listening tour tonight. So what I thought would be good, then more than me going through all of the different actions that we came up with, was to have four senior leaders here from the City of London to talk you through their preferred action
0: and to give you a reaction from what's in the report. Um, so
1: with that, I'll hand over to Manish. Thank you. Okay,
0: very good. Thank you, uh, Grace. So I'm going to invite Brenda to start us off, and she's going to speak to us about changing mind about, minds about what is a good candidate. Thank you very much, Manoush. And just to
2: say at the beginning, I was so delighted when Karina introduced me to Grace and I heard that they were doing this work because the 30% Club has really shifted to talking about inclusive culture from just talking about diversity. So we think this is absolutely critical. Um, Tonight, I'm going to talk to you about about candidates at every level of organizations. And and first, I would say, and and Grace touched on this, just the, the, the term good candidate, is a very subjective term because, of course, good means different things to different people. And and so I think that in itself is, is tricky. Um, I think we really need to challenge ourselves in terms of cultural norms when we think about fit and we think about good candidates and, and who we want to work with. Um, and that's at recruitment level. When you think about graduates coming into a firm, that's at... Promotion levels, that's thinking about work allocation, because often who gets allocated the jobs or the big projects, the high-profile pieces, really matters. And and ultimately, um, that, that goes all the way up to executive levels and actually to board directors and to chairs. And so, you know, this is something that, that applies everywhere. And, and we recently had a 30% club session the week before last with um, a group of the search professionals that make most of the big board appointments here in the UK. And we talked about this a lot. And and it's amazing how the themes come through. And so one of the things I think, you know, when we think about recruitment level and, you know, the very beginning piece when you're coming into work, um, there's a, a lot of bias that comes in based on what university you've been to what activities you've done, what your interests are, and and I think CVs in general. And so many of you may have read in the press recently um, about PwC's campaign about about getting rid of CVs. And really that's that's about at student recruitment level. I think, you know, in the short term, if you're really trying to rebalance your team and you, you want to create a more diverse team, the idea of probably separating CVs out into two piles and, and, you know, ranking candidates within genders, let's say, if that's what you're trying to solve makes sense. But longer term, trying to avoid CVs altogether, I think, is is the way to go, and, and that's what we've been doing at PwC. So we've um, removed UCAS points from the majority of our, our graduate and undergraduate applications, thinking about you know, looking at, at social, socioeconomic and, and about backgrounds and things, really trying not to just focus on, on those that have the highest scores. We've changed the universities that we look to if, if we are recruiting from universities. Um, we've looked at work experience programs, we've looked at coaching people, and we've really moved much more to applications. And so um, we've developed a number of situational judgment tests and game-based assessments. Um, we're trying to evaluate innate personality traits and and really trying to create situations that candidates would find themselves in in a job instead of just coming in and screening CVs and, and, and things. Because I think no matter what you say, everyone has their biases, and it's, it's human nature that if, if you see things on a CV, you can't be blind to them as much as, as you want to be. And so, so we're looking at all kinds of ways, even from interviews where we have um, we have machine learning to, to read various cues in terms of how people speak and how they behave and things and 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 trying to understand how we can eliminate all bias, whether it is gender, whether it's you know socioeconomic background, race, etc. And we've had some good results. Now we are still testing lots of things, um, but we have found that that we have started recruiting um, in a, a much different cohort of students students and non students um, than we have in, in the past. And so I think at the recruitment level, it's, it's really important. When you think about work allocation and promotions and things, you know, once again, um, especially in professional services firms, but I think in, in any big company it, it, it applies, the people that get the best work assignments, that get on the best projects, the high-profile projects, and the ones that really build the networks are the people that tend to succeed. So how do you eliminate that natural bias of, going to the people that you like to spend time with. Well, we've tried to create, um, we've tried to look at the process and we've tried to create a system where every time there's a big project coming up, um, we, we go out widely to the population and we have a, a separate system that, that screens people coming in based on the experience they have or the skill set, the capabilities they've listed, even internally in allocating work so that we move away from people just choosing the same people every time. And I think even companies need to think about that when they look at overseas assignments or big projects. And as you move all the way up through to the top of the organization, you think about boards. Interestingly, this came out with a lot of the search professionals. When you look at directors, and, and particularly at chairs, those archetypes that exist of what does a chair look like? You know, what does a director look like? And, and what experience do you need to have? And what we found was that there's a lot of over-indexing on experience and under-indexing on potential. And and also people talking about, you know, if you look at everyone that think they have a certain type of experience or they've done X or Y, they're not going to come into to an organization and use the same playbook that worked for them in one company and, and use that again in another. You, know, you don't want people doing that. You want to see people that have been able to adapt, that have had different experiences, and not just the same old experience. You know, we also look at um, the fact that people tend to have one model of what a board director should look like, rather than thinking about building a complementarity of, of skills. Um, One of the other things that came out was was boards wanting to always have chairs who've had chair experience. Well, if every chair has had chair experience, we're we're soon going to be running out of chairs. You know, chairs some of the biggest companies. And and what is that chair experience they need? Why can't we start thinking about you know building up some different candidates there? And I think the, the last one around you know being more inclusive is. If we think that all board directors on the biggest companies have to have been a board director before or have to have been a CEO or CFO, once again, you know, you're getting to a very narrow group and you're really not benefiting from from different perspectives, different views. So every board could probably have the capacity to have at least one person who hasn't had that experience before. And the rest of the board could certainly help bring them along. I mean, surely it's it's not beyond the wit of man or woman to learn how to be on a board. So, um, I mean, I, I could talk on about this, this topic for ages, and I don't want to overrun my time, but I think, you know, it, all of us need to really challenge, as I say, from recruitment to promotion to retention, you know, from the beginning all the way up to, to the, the executive and the board levels. Challenge those archetypes. Challenge what we, the job descriptions. Really ask, you know, if, if not this person, why not? And if not now, when? And, and really think much more carefully
0: about that. And I'll stop there. Okay. Thank you, Brenda. You've put out a lot of interesting and challenging ideas that uh, challenge our preconceptions, so I'm sure you're going to get lots of questions. Let's turn to Irshad, who will talk a little bit about being inclusive at the beginning of the pipeline.
3: Thank you. Uh, when I moved from Toronto 10 years ago and started working in the city, I think one of my early observations was why aren't there more people who look like me? Um, and maybe even more to the point, because I'm of South Asian descent, why are there no black people? Um, 10 years ago, there were virtually no black people working in the city, certainly in the, in, in the company and the universe I worked with. So when I, when I started asking around, the, the most common answer I got, well, well, at the front end of the pipeline, the, uh, effectively when people are coming out of school, uh, no one applies from these particular ethnic backgrounds. So it's a supply problem, it's not our fault, it's a supply problem. Okay, fair enough. Um, If you've not read, a good friend of mine, Dawood Kanatea Hulu, uh, writes a blog, it's called Talk About Black, and he wrote a fantastic piece some time ago uh, talking about effectively kinks in the hose pipe that impact people of either South Asian descent or black people from getting into uh, this industry uh, using his own personal experience. And I would commend that to you because it's a, it's a brilliant piece of work and followed up by uh, some uh, an interesting personal reflection by Gavin Lewis, who now uh, works at BlackRock, uh, re- uh, talking about his own experiences as well. But fundamentally, I think uh, the, the, the challenge that we have is how to actually get people from various communities to even think about our industry, because it is actually, if there are no applicants coming in, um, then the the problem will will continue. Now, last night, as it happens, I was listening to a podcast, uh, not something that people of my age tend to do a lot of, but I was. Uh, Gregory Porter, who's a fantastic soul singer, was was interviewing, I was having a conversation with Annie Lennox, And, and they got to a part of the conversation where they started talking about something I could relate to called code switching. When I was growing up, and, and um, I, I found out that I actually speak differently to different people. And my kids now joke uh, at me that when my dad calls, I drop into this Guyanese way of speaking, because I'm originally from Guyana. When I'm speaking to people from Toronto, maybe if I'm speaking later to Richard, I might sound different than I'm speaking now. We all speak to be, to be understood. And I think that's important, actually, because if, if we use the language that we used to communicate with each other to try to speak to young people of, of frankly any background, it's not going to work because they don't speak like we do uh, and they won't understand the, uh, the, the, the way that we're trying to communicate to them. So um, those are just some, some general reflections. What, what is happening in the industry? Unfortunately, Allianz Global Investors isn't a big enough employer to move the dial by ourselves, but luckily we're part of the Investment Association. And one of the great initiatives that is part of the Investment Association is something called Investment 2020. And that, that organization seeks to take people from all different types of background, but also uh, not just ethnicity, but also academic backgrounds, people that might not have even contemplated uh, asset management or finance as a, as a possible entry point, and try to get them into the investment industry. And that organization has been very successful working with asset management firms to get a much broader spectrum of people in at the earlier stage of their career and hopefully then that will that will build up. Uh, that's the that's the, the first thing. The second, uh, uh, the second thing that I think is happening in schools right now, which I comment on in in the paper, is apprenticeship programs are now much more common and are not being presented in a way uh, that is somehow negative. I think in the past uh, if you were going to come out of school either in fifth form or sixth form and choose to go to an apprenticeship program there was somehow some form of stigma to it. Oh you couldn't get into university and hence you're going to try to find some, some other thing. And now it's being presented. The government and others are presenting it in a way that is actually very very positive and not as an alternative to university, but as a complement to actually potentially, by the time you finish your, your academic career, you also have work experience in a particular career, not necessarily investments, but whatever career it is you want. And I think those types of things, apprenticeship programs, things like Investment 2020, we need to have a lot more of those types of initiatives going on. The, the last one uh, that I'll mention before I before I end my comments is I was um, once involved in an organization that's now part of the Princess Trust, which, is, which was trying to go out into communities and deal directly with individuals from a mentoring perspective. And I do think that there is an element of, of trying to get people into the pipeline of, of future hires that unfortunately is... About one to one discussion, about actually going into schools and having individual conversations or group conversations with young people, perhaps sometimes even with their parents, to talk to them about what the actual future potential of uh, their children and what their careers are. And that is hard work. Unfortunately, it doesn't involve social media and Twitter and, and all those types of things. It is actually one-to-one conversations. There are still organizations out there doing it, um, and I hope that they continue to do that. But uh, you know, that's probably the last thing and the hardest thing that needs to be done just simply about raising awareness of the opportunity that exists because I think still not many people actually outside of our industry really know what is... Uh, what it is that we do uh, other than maybe they read about evil bankers in the, in the newspapers. Um, so I'll stop there. Happy Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Let's turn to Teresa who's going to talk about the role of the environment.
4: So when I was talking to Grace as part of her listening tour, one of the things she did is she said, you know, what made the difference in your career? Uh, you're a woman. You've done very well. You, you, know, you did have an economics degree. You did get a graduate degree. But what made the difference? Um, and it was the environment. Um, it was a time of tremendous growth. Uh, I was lucky to hit that streak, and that meant a couple of things. It meant that um, it was opportunities that were there for everybody. I wasn't me or other women going up the ladder weren't taking opportunities away from someone else. It was also a time where Getting things solved mattered. Getting a good answer mattered. Competition was really, uh, uh, it was a very disruptive time. Competition was quite high, and if you could figure that out, that really mattered, and so that overall macro environment really made a difference in terms of a a generation of women, I think, that actually got an opportunity um, and didn't have a lot of the politics they might have had and could break through some of the barriers that were there before. But what that also did, that that was a macro environment that mattered, but I think also the micro environment that happened at that time was really good. Because it was so disruptive and because things were moving so quickly and financial services were changing, figuring out something that was better than the competition mattered. So wherever the answer came from helped. That was really, really important. So I think the group dynamics changed at that time. I also think, um, and this is just supposition, but uh, a lot of the men that were at the top at that time uh, were were in charge, their daughters were my age. And I think they looked at a lot of the women at that time and said, well, you're like my daughter. Why wouldn't I be giving you the same chance that I would want my daughter to have? So that environment really matters, I think. Um, So that was part of the story. But then when you look at it the other way, flip that environment the other way around. If the economy isn't doing well then people start to go to tribal behavior. You know, they leave the party, they go back to their families, and they start to protect their own. Um, And I think then they also start to behave in ways that exclude people. Um, And I think that's the environment that actually, and and uncertainty, causes that too. So if you don't know what's going on, people start to do rumors. You start to protect your own. So that environment, I think, really can be a positive but also a negative. Um, And so I think that overall environment um, really matters matters. So you can see then, you know, if you go to an environment that isn't that positive, you don't hit that lucky streak, the economy's really going, um, that you could really lose a lot of ground in terms of inclusion, in terms of creativity, in terms of thinking about things differently. Um, And that would really be a shame because now we know what a difference that can make, um, even though Grace is going to do more work to really prove that out and make sure it's just not a correlation. Um, So one of the stories I really like is a study that I um, read um, from the undercover economist uh, when he was doing a book called Messy. And he found a study from Catherine Phillips and some other psychologists. And they set small groups out working on a problem uh, and before introducing a new team member to help. And sometimes when they introduced a new team member, it was a stranger. And sometimes it was a familiar face. But they ended up then having groups um, that were forced to work with strangers. But those groups, interestingly, were more likely to solve the problem. But their experience was slightly more uncomfortable. um, And they sharply underrated their success. The groups that worked with friends did much worse. But they had more fun. (laughs) (laughs) And they were under the illusion that they'd done a good job. <laughs> so I think the inclusion piece is quite interesting because actually you might not feel like it's quite doing as much as you think it is. But if in you know, such disruptive times, getting those different perspectives actually really matters. And I think what happens in groups, and I see this in my own uh, working environment, where groups come together where you don't all know each other and you don't have all those codes that work together, you actually have to ask, why do you think that? Why would you do that? What did you do last time? What was your experience? And actually that sort of conversation is what gets you to better answers over time. So I think that that it really, really matters in terms of um, our future And as a leader um, in the environment, in making the environment um, work, I think about that. That's one of the things I really think about. Um, And I think about meetings where I go in, and I did have this experience a couple of years ago in my own organization, which I think is actually pretty good. I walked into this room of all men. They were all wearing dark suits. They all had white shirts on, and they were all, like, and I was supposed to come in and 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 present. And I thought, if I'd been a younger version of myself, that would have been really hard. So I said to them, you know, do you guys know how scary you are? And they're like, really? They don't even really know. So I think it's just those things that actually make more people feel comfortable. I mean, you have to be pretty strong and confident if you're going to walk into that sort of room. And we all do it. And I think that's one of the things that the microenvironment needs to change as well. Is that we all have to take responsibility. I think for making those environments something that we can we can actually hear the other voices in the room.
0: Very so, good. Thank, thank you. you, Teresa. I saw lots of heads nodding in the audience as you were speaking. Richard, tell us a little bit about speaking to a different kind of shareholder.
5: Sure. Um, I, I've heard a lot of fantastic comments. I'm not going to be as brilliant as these people. but uh, And by the way, I was an evil banker. In uh, <laughs> fact, somebody call, used to call me a bankster. Uh, and. Uh, and, but but and, Canadian,
0: but, and everybody likes Canadian. Okay.
5: <laughs> and I was going to put a plug in. The secret of my success was I went to the LSE. Okay. Yes. Oh. Yes.
0: Everybody likes people who go to the LSE.
5: No, you like them, right? <laughs> uh, so um, I, I retired from the CIBC, uh, which is a Canadian bank. Uh, uh, our head is here, Wayne Lee. Uh, and uh, in 2014... And that year, for some reason, well, I know why now, but the Women in Capital Markets gave me this award called the Visionary Award. And uh, the Visionary Award, when I said, why are you giving me the Visionary Award? And, and they had never really, they had never given it to a man before. And th- th- their view was all the work I had done in advancing women throughout the organization for, you know, 15 years. And I said, yeah, but you know, I was just trying to make more money. <laughs> okay. uh, I was just trying to make the company better. I was, you know, and, and yeah, we had a whole program of advancing uh, women and others into more senior positions. Um, but because I observed that if you combine men and women together you know, on a project, they deliver a better result. So you should do that, right? If you're a leader, okay? And, and to do that because when I started, 90% of the employees were men, you actually have to go out and hire more women, right, at all levels, in order to accomplish this so the, uh, so then I so people say, well, why don't you write a book, and so I wrote a book uh, called Results at the Top, with a co-author, <laughs> called Barbara Annis, uh, uh, my co-author is Barbara Annis and the whole premise of that book is why it's in men's responsibility to promote diversity it's in their interest okay, and so and why? Because their company's gonna do better and then they're gonna do better. And if we can get, and that's why it's very important to have men engaged in this discussion, okay? Because first of all, they control a lot of the reins of power. Just look around, you know, in terms of business and government, etc. It's getting better, but it's still there. Uh, and, and so you need their support and you need them to act. Um, and so what does that come down to? So, So I felt that that was what my shareholders wanted me to do. Okay, I was going to lead this organization, and we're going to. Of course, we wanted to, We want to produce good financial results. There's lots of research that says the more women in leadership on boards and in management produces better financial results. There's a tremendous amount of research that says that. So, so my question to to audiences of leaders, which are mostly men uh, today, still unfortunately, um, although getting better. Is like isn't that your job? Like shouldn't you be doing that? Uh, so, so that comes down to, I think, convincing more men that it is their job, okay? And men, men uh, uh, drop into three different groups, I think. There's a lot of supporters today I believe this, okay? And there's a, you can see them out there all the time. We were just talking to a bank whose CEO is a very strong advocate and supporter of diversity. There's another group of people that will ultimately die that really don't believe this, uh, and they, by the way, no one ever says they don't believe it anymore, right? No, but you can tell by their some behavior. Do. Some do. Yeah, maybe some do, but uh, so. And then there's this big group in the middle, big, uh, that go, "Yeah, this is a pretty good idea, but it's not my problem," right? That's the view of most men, you know, as they're coming up through the organization. Hey, it's a pretty good idea. I think we should do that. We should be inclusive. And, you know, but it's really not my problem. My problem is I'm trying to get ahead, right? I'm trying to make money, get ahead, do well in my career. So we need to convert more of those people to think, well, it's not your problem. It's your opportunity, okay? And that's what shareholders want. So, um, part of the work of the inclusion initiative, which is the reason I'm working with uh, Grace and and Karina, is measurement, okay? We need to see better measurement of how companies are doing. Are these inclusive places to work? Uh, There should be, uh, just you know how there are these uh, shareholder, uh, 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 in terms of uh, uh, governance, indices and things like that in various countries, There should be more measurement, more publicly available indices on how inclusive companies are. And then we we can then take that work and compare it to the results. Uh, And so part of the work of the inclusion initiative, uh, 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 Grace has convinced me of, is that we need to get more measurement. There's a lot of information out there, but people have been reticent to measure, partly because they're not very proud of their story, quite honestly. Now, there are companies that are proud of their story. I hear about them all the time. uh, uh, a Canadian bank RBC 40% of their leadership is, is uh, female now, right? And they're the best performing bank in, in uh, Canada so, you know, I think there's a correlation uh, in, in terms of the way they do business. So I'm very much in favor of let's measure this and let's give people the, the, the statistics and the facts on why this is in their interest and then shareholders will react to that and demand change.
0: Thank you very much. And now I'm going to turn to Karina, who is going to get your views on the issue. Been given,
6: am um, yes. You know, one of the things about um, inclusion is technological incompetence should also be included. <laughs> so why I have been given this task is slightly beyond me. But um, what do I need to press? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> It's I don't need to do anything. Excellent. <laughs> no, do
7: anything. Excellent. <laughs>
6: so we would like you to look. You'll have three simple questions. And you have all been given a little thing. And please press. <laughs> Recall the last important meeting you were in with five or more people. Did one person speak for the majority of the time? I think it's pretty obvious where we're going with that one. I was going to say, could you all reflect on it? But perhaps it's not that important. Now interesting, interesting that we're also getting meetings where you actually have a more inclusive atmosphere. It's, this, is, this is surprising for us, I have to say, and this is partly why we want to measure things. You know, is the world changing? Do you have something where more people are being included in, in meetings and does the chair realise you have to hear from everybody? I think we've done this. Yes. Yeah. Second, recall the last important meeting you were in with five or more people. Did introverts participate significantly less than extroverts? I mean, one of the things about inclusion, we talk about gender diversity, sexual orientation, ethnicity. But the truth is, everybody is either an extrovert or an introvert along a range. And quite, you know, there are quite a few middle, what I would call middle managers who people see as impediments to change who might be introverts. They're not alpha males. And they're not heard at these meetings. And it's just as important to hear the hidden information or what they know about than it is about hearing those who are willing to come out and find it very easy to talk. So that's, um, I think we would have expected that actually. So that's quite interesting. The third question, third and last question, Recall the last important meeting you were in with five or more people. Did many people look tuned out, <laughs> flipping through their emails on their phone? Mm. And I'm glad to see none of you are flipping through your emails on your phone. <laughs> I mean, that's some, uh, something where it slightly obviously depends on corporate culture, because it may be seen as very rude, and therefore people don't do it, even though mentally, you know, they've tuned out. Um, but it is an important issue, because it does mean that you're not really being included in the ideas, or maybe actually you shouldn't be in that meeting because it actually is irrelevant to you, and yet again they've created a huge meeting to make sure they bring everybody along, but in fact it's not necessary. So an interesting last, um, Yeah, last remark. Now this is, you know, it's a slightly facile way of doing this, um, obviously because it's all of you and you're slightly self-selecting because you're here because you're interested in diversity and inclusion. But one of the things I find most interesting is as soon as you have data, it's much more convincing. The other day, I was with uh, the CEO of a quantum computing company, and they have this incredibly inclusive culture. And they don't have a vision about it or anything, but it's partly because they have a lot of scientists, and the scientists are on the autistic scale. So you you do have to, I mean, these are brilliant people, but you have to bring them out a lot. Um, And the CEO realized that to be a superb company, that's one of the things they needed to do. Now, the reason I mention this to you is because he also said to me when I was talking to him about the work Grace and I are doing at the LSE and the launch of the Inclusion Initiative and my being involved in something called the Worshipful Company of International Bankers, which I'll tell you about, he said, why the hell are you sticking to the city? It's got a terrible atmosphere, it's not inclusive. It's all about greedy bankers, or banksters, as Richard (laughs) called them. But finance can change the world. You know, green finance, how are we ever, ever going to get to solutions if we can't help in the transition the energy transition, if we can't help finance renewables. There's loads of stuff and finance will always be important. Whether it's bankers, whether it's FinTech, whatever it is, um, professional services in the city. So I think that's, uh, that's why I'm still sticking to the city and I believe we can make things change. Now I wanna talk about the Worshipful Company of International Bankers and we have a few members here. It's a 700 wide network of people who are bankers, accountants, because in the city it's not just about great organizations and great people like the four you have sitting over there. It's also about the informal networks. And one of the things I saw with this livery company, and it's a mouthful, you know, the Worshipful Company of International Bankers. I mean, it sounds pompous, doesn't it? (laughs) But get younger people in, get everybody in. Um, we recently had our annual banquet and if you looked, you thought, oh my god you'd never believe this is a livery company because it's about including people in the networks that will help them in their careers and allow them to help others and some of the biggest proponents and because I needed a few, quite a few champions within the worshipful company and yes, it was the obvious ones the women, the few ethnic minority members we had the few gay members we had but more than anything else, it was the older, white, middle-aged men who were with me on this and helped immensely. And without them, we wouldn't be changing the organization if this we have. Now, one last quick line, and then I'm gonna hand over to Minouche. Um, the Inclusion Initiative is something that was born when Grace and I were out there talking to the city, and Richard just said, why is this just a report You can use behavioral science and data to make change happen. And we need to make change happen. And the best way of doing it is by using the amazing resources at the LSE, both in behavioral science and in data. And it's cross-fertilization. We've got all these different departments here, you know, incredible um, learning from all over the world. But what we also have, and I think this is crucial, is we have great champions in the city. And I can't tell you how lucky we are to have these four people here because we will work with them and with others like them in partnership to make change happen and to prove to some of those who don't believe that it works and to others just to help them on the journey because it's not an easy journey and it is a hard task. Anyway, thank you.
0: Okay, it's time to open it up for discussion. You've heard lots of interesting ideas. I think, I think let's take it as given... That inclusion is good <laughs> and I think it would be really interesting to focus our discussion on what to do about it, the evidence what works, what doesn't and what areas of research do we need to focus on uh, that will provide new solutions and where the opportunities might be so let me open it up, I'll take three questions at a time uh, and if you could introduce yourself very briefly and then ask your question, I'll start with the lady here and then I'll go to the gentleman in the back and then the woman here Thank you, Manush. I'm Catherine Lewis. I'm CEO of British Patient Capital. I actually had a question for Brenda because you mentioned
2: that you had a machine learning tool to help you pick out candidates to sift through. We've also heard, though, that machines are programmed by people with biases. So I was just wondering how you thought about taking the bias out of AI and machine learning as part of what you're doing at PwC. Absolutely. I mean, we, we have, we've tested it, and, and we, we're very aware of, of all of the problems with algorithms and algorithm, algorithmic sifting of CVs and things. And so, you know, really what, what ours is doing is, is focusing on as close as possible to the experience in the job that the candidates will have, as opposed to sifting through their characteristics and their, their data and things. So it's really around sifting through their um, simulations, so we use simulated work environments, and we try and, and test um, competency that way, as opposed to looking at back data, um, because I think your point is is very valid, and, and actually this, this came up in the search firm meeting that we had. Even at senior NED level, and you wouldn't think it, um, some of the search firms, because they'll get so many applications for some board appointments, um, there, there is some algorithmic sifting even at that level, and you know they are really pushing back on that and saying that that eliminates a lot of, of um, very good candidates, but candidates who would have would have had potential. And so I, I, I agree. I think that's a good point. And for us, um, we actually recently were, were awarded at PwC, um, I think social mobility um, number one employer because we have been able to move the needle so much by trying to do things differently, but but I certainly wouldn't say we, we've got the final answer yet. We, we're continuing to iterate and see
0: how we can make it better. Very interesting. Uh, gentleman back there.
5: Hi. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you, Manouche, for LSE Festival in general. This is like my eighth event, and they're amazing. Oh, okay. fantastic. Uh, thank, so you so thank you so much Thank uh, yeah. My name is Sam. I'm from Toronto. I'm studying uh, global health policy, a master's student. Uh, I wanted to ask because... Uh, as when recruiters are coming, uh, they're obviously trying to put together diverse teams that are going to work in various fields, um, but they're also looking for people who, um, can, can, who not are only not are, are just diverse, but can work on a diverse team. So how does you know a white heterosexual male show that they're they're one of these people? Um, and you know how 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 does a recruiter kind of screen for that?
0: Very good question. I think I'm going to give that one to you, Richard.
5: <laughs> Um, uh, it's a very good question, you know. Uh, the, uh, yeah, they want people, you, you know, you'd be surprised how quickly a skilled uh, interviewer can figure out what your biases are. Now, uh, somebody said that here, like we all have biases. Every single person has biases, uh, but a skilled interviewer can draw that out of you very quickly. So the question will be, you know, uh, do you have, are these biases going to get in the way of you being able to do your job? And so I, I think that I'm not going to worry about whether they they're going to be able to figure out whether you're the kind of person that can work with a variety of different other kinds of people. And the other comment I would make about that is your generation is way better at this than my old generation. Okay, because first of all, I think when I went to a business school uh, in the uh, 70s, unfortunately, uh, I, I think there was only three women in the whole class. Like you know, in in two sections, I think. And they, all, by the way, they did extremely well, those three women. Uh, It's way different now, of course. Um, But we didn't have the role models to see. Your generation is way different. You have role models uh, that were women, like the director, Manoush, running these organizations. We never had that uh, back then. You're comfortable with people of all different backgrounds and genders and races running organizations you've seen them do it so that's why I think things have gotten better they're nowhere near where they should be so I think your generation and and, and it's it's gives you some hope that uh, will can deal with this much better so um, but but don't worry like people that are talking to you they know uh, what you're thinking
1: I do, I, do, I do want to add, just, just coming back to data again, you can imagine that for simplicity for tonight that there's two types of jobs, senior jobs and junior jobs. And for the senior jobs, one thing that some innovative companies have moved towards is not asking people in an interview whether or not you care about diversity and inclusion because everybody says yes but asking for evidence on who you've brought forward in your teams through the past, and looking to see who you did join projects with, who you were co-authoring with, because it's very easy for us to say that we care about diversity, but actually if you look retrospectively and look at your actions, because I'm a behavioral scientist, it's not what you say, it's what you do, there's a lot of bang for your buck. And I think at the junior level, one thing that I've seen work quite effectively in tech firms is task-based assessments instead of looking at CVs. So you get people to do tasks. And when they need people to work as a group, they put them together in groups and they observe not just the outcome of the task but how people actually interact together. So at the two levels of the pipeline, there are ways for us to learn about how people work with diverse sets of individuals beyond just asking them for their opinion in the room.
3: Can I? Sorry. Please. um, One thing we do, maybe specifically on this issue, because it is it's it's an important question and a and a difficult one, and I'm not sure that we necessarily have uh, the the perfect answer. But in reflecting on on how to deal with this, is uh, what the interview panel or the the sort of the composition of people who are interviewing candidates, particularly graduate candidates, are, and so there actually. We do our best to get a reasonably diverse group of people in multiple dimensions. I won't go into all the dimensions we look at here, but even not necessarily the most gregarious people doing interviews, because actually it's amazing how when a, an introvert interviews someone, uh, so they're relatively quiet, eventually the other person just starts filling the, 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 the room the with, 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 uh, with, with stuff. Um, but <laughs> the, so, so one of the ways to overcome and make sure you don't sort of reverse the bias is actually, at least what we do, is to make sure that the interview panel is diverse. It's not perfect, but it does help. A bit
7: the woman here. Thank you so much. Hi, my name is Jenny Nott. Um, And I'll just mention briefly, I was uh, a female, obviously, CEO of of an investment bank in the city of London. Um, and I now specialize in technology and advising firms, and the reason that's important is because a lot of the boardrooms, and I am a chairman of a board and uh, a Ned of, of various organizations, want evidence, want science of something that links two parts of my career together, which is um, an inclusive culture. Obviously, I worked for organizations that embraced inclusion because otherwise, I wouldn't have had the career that I did and, and was able to enjoy. But secondly, with innovation, I try and demonstrate and I advise them today on uh, an inclusive culture will improve innovation, which means for the city, for the organisations that I work with, the bottom line. The science is pretty poor. There's a few publications out there, there's a few bits of research, but it's pretty poor. However, in the practical level, whenever I start these debates, whenever I start these advisory uh, tasks, I start with, and I think um, both the ladies at the end, so forgive me, Teresa and Brenda, you hinted at this, about recruiting people who don't fit. Now, the problem I've seen with a lot of these organizations is they work so hard, as you both evidenced, at trying to embrace a culture that brings in people who don't fit. But they don't actually change the organization to work effectively with those people who don't fit. So they the bring them all in, and then we fall apart at the seams because they don't right. fit. So what what can we do to improve that? What can we do within the organization that actually embraces those people who don't fit? What can we change in our tolerance for behavior, clothes, etiquette? So,
2: so, so I think, I mean, very quickly, you're right, you know, just recruiting and creating a diverse group at recruitment level is the easier part. Retention and creating an inclusive culture is the challenging bit. And you know every organization is, is different. But I, I will say, once again, thinking of my own organization, we made some big changes a couple of years ago. Um, and, and I think that reflects why our average age is 28. Um, we have moved to dress for your day. We've moved to complete hot desking, and so no offices anymore, even for partners. Everybody has a laptop and a mobile and sits wherever they want when they come in. We've changed you know, all the workspaces to make them much funkier and, and you know, much more collaborative. Um, and, and actually, I mean, I've talked a lot to people there, and, and especially as, as a new person coming in, to say, you know, how has this impacted things? And it has changed things to make it more appealing and make it more inclusive. I mean, you, you can't change everything just by changing an office layout. But I have spoken to a couple of other companies who've done that. They've taken the opportunity when they've moved or they've been refurbishing to say, let's see if we can change the culture a bit by changing the dress code, changing the office layout. And just thinking about the environment, I think, you know, in, in from a, a different um, context of environment to, to what Teresa brought up, but I, I think that's one way, but you're right. Companies have to be very, very deliberate to look at you know how inclusive the culture is, because you can have as much diversity as you want, but if your culture isn't inclusive, none of it's going to stick and it's not going to thrive.
0: Teresa, did you want to, because you talked about the micro environment of groups yeah. and how awkward
4: it is in the beginning when you've got diverse yeah. groups.
0: I think how do you work through that?
4: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. One, and, and I'm surprised Bernie didn't bring this up, but actually just hiring one person is really hard. I mean, I remember um, asking at one point, why 30% club? Well, actually, that's the point at which the people that are there start to feel comfortable themselves, and they can actually feel like they can make a difference. Um, but I do think it gets down to leadership and actually sponsorship Um, and changing the way you run meetings Um, and so yeah it's changing the organization but also just one person can be really hard or just one if it's if it's a minority real real minority that's tokenism that's really hard and that's hard on the person so it actually has to be more that that it has to be a broader group but then leadership has to say I'm gonna help make this work Um, and I think you can start to um, evolve um, the way you actually change. So men to women, starting in terms of um, the schools you go to, uh, the problems you give people to solve, who leads meetings. I mean, there's just things to shake it up. And actually, one of the things that I found interesting, I was able to work in – Asia for 5 years and I was given cultural training there and one of the things I was told is it's so hierarchical that whatever you say they will do I'm like oh gosh <laughs> Wow. So one of the things I had just
0: to... just like that at the LLC. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever
4: I say. Whatever you say. Yeah, there you go. But one of the things I did then is I started and I told everybody, when I'm going to do meetings, I'm going to ask opinions, and I'm going to start with the most junior person. I mean, it's a bit like they do in Japan, but actually that changed. So that wasn't my view. That was the first view. It was... And, and you changed to adjust to the culture.
2: A very brief point on, on that absolutely brilliant point, Teresa. I was with the company this morning that talked about the fact they'd made all this change in their recruitment and they increased the number of of women and, and ethnic minorities by a huge amount. And they were losing 65 percent of them within six months of joining because one person sitting in a group. So that that's a company that goes throughout the country and they have little offices. And if they have one of those candidates on their own in one of these offices, really? doesn't work. So you, you, it's, it's an excellent point, yep. and they're
0: now rethinking it. Wow, we got so many questions. Um, I'm going to take. Uh, wow, uh, we've got two <laughs> minutes, and I've got about 15 hands up. So I'm going to take three or four questions, and then I'm going to ask each of the panelists to just react very, very quickly, if I may. But you've got to keep the questions really short so I can do justice to them. I'll take the gentleman in the back. I'll take the gentleman here, the woman here, and the woman here. I'm sorry. That. that uh...
3: Great. Thank you. Um, David Pearson from KPMG, i a director, um, Culture and Engagement and Inclusion and Diversity. Um, can behavioral science help us understand why the word love is taboo?
5: In corporate environments in the city,
4: Claudia Aiton, independent consultant in DNI. My question is really focused to uh, Grace and Karina. To what extent is the research that you're doing specific to the city, and is it at all transferable to other sectors? Mm-hmm. Okay. Hi,
3: Milan Vročič, and actually working consulting in the city. Um, going for some of the recruitment events. Um, the type of questions that we are getting from from students are not so much about like what work you do etc there is google for that but what are you doing on inclusion and diversity what are you doing about mental health what are you doing about all of those aspects having in mind that for the new generations inclusion is a minimum that they consider mental health is a minimum that's not even negotiable anymore what is next and i've heard some things about belonging which is kind of next up after inclusion So what do you see as the next? Because that next, I feel, is going to come very soon.
0: Um, I'm Ruabuji. I'm an alumna, postgraduate and undergraduate, and I've worked um, in the city and in consulting uh, since leaving the LSE. Um, my question was um, uh, regarding Theresa's very generous point about about the macroeconomic conditions supporting her advancement. I'm sure being very modest, um, we're obviously in an, in a, 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 a cycle of the economy where where um, there's a lot of of kind of uh, volatility. Um, and uh, quite a, a danger that some of the kind of the progress that we've made, if people revert to the behaviours that you described, will see us backsliding. Um, are there some things um, that you uh, think c- can be done by organisations and individuals to stop those gains being being lost? Kind of in the current time that we're in. Thank you. Good. I'll just ask each panelist and I'll end with you, Grace. Uh, Brenda, any reactions to well, those? What's the next big thing?
2: I, th- I think you know, belonging was, was a good point. I know people that are now heads of diversity, inclusion, and belonging as a new title. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So I, I think purpose is, is a big thing. And I, I think you know, if you have a sense of purpose and sense of belonging, then, then I think you, you really get engagement. But the, the, um, the other big piece is, is looking around you know, inclusion in terms of design. And you know, when you think about product design, service design, advertising, marketing, I think we're shifting to not just having an internal focus around diversity and inclusion, but having an external focus on it as
0: well. Very good, Ishad. Um,
3: if it's okay, I'll respond to the same uh, the same question. Um, for what we're seeing, the next big thing is is uh, people want to work for companies that are doing good. Um, so it links to some extent to purpose, but it actually comes much more broadly under ethics. Um, and are you operating in a way that we can be proud of? We were talking about a particular company, I won't mention its name, uh, a, a little bit earlier, that, that actually acts in a, in a way that, that, that keep people, that draw people in. They're proud to say, I work for this company. And lots of people of this generation that we interview these days ask very penetrating questions about that. I think so if that's the next big thing, but it's certainly a thing that's developing now.
4: Okay. We say anything you wanted to add? I'm gonna take the question on, you know, how do you not backslide? And I think that um, if I go to the macro environment right now, there is a lot of uncertainty. Uh the you know Predictions this year that the uh, world growth is going to be halved because of the coronavirus. But it is also a time of incredible disruption, the technology that's happening, the generational change that's happening. And so the companies that are really successful right now get that and are actually very inclusive. Not, there's maybe some things maybe aren't that good, but uh, uh, in some of them, but I think actually that's the thing that macro environment. Where mine was sort of uh, serendipitous, you know, gosh, the economy is taking off. A lot of women have good education. You, you, you get to go along with the tide. I think that actually means with that knowledge, people, uh, firms that are purposeful about that will not black, backslide. The ones that do backslide, I think, are not going to survive or will just, you know, step along the bottom. Yeah.
0: Anything you want to add?
5: You need to go loved one? I was I, actually I am Good. so uh, so you know that's not the first time I've heard this uh, like I'm an investment banker right and you'd you'd wonder like what the heck are these guys talking about in investment banking but um, uh, you know thirty forty years ago if you had brought this up we would have uh, you know labeled you as an oddball right but it's coming up more and more often now in conversations um, and I think like what I, I I don't know how to deal with it quite honestly but. Uh, the word respect you know is part of love I think especially in like a marriage for example if you don't respect your other partner not, uh, like how you can expect to live together and what I'm seeing in organizations is this is one of the real challenges we have to ensure that everybody respects the other person whether the you know gender, race uh, socioeconomic background and I'm finding that's a real problem I gotta tell you like it's it's how do you create a culture of respect in the organization and it doesn't happen just because you write it down in a code of conduct uh, it writes it it happens because tone from the top the leaders uh, you know walk uh, walk the talk um, and I'm j- I'm on a board of a company right now we're dealing with that issue so you know disrespectful culture um, and by the way it goes all everybody c- can be accused of it right so I like that question because it's quite intriguing and quite. Uh, uh, how do you inject love into investment banking? I don't know, uh, but <laughs> if we just had more respect for each other, uh, and you respected the clients, you respected your coworkers, I think we'd have tremendously better organizations, and uh, that's something we should, you know, really teach as a as a core value of everybody. I think right from the time they're little children. Great.
6: Great. Um, I'm not going to take love. In fact, it makes me feel so uncomfortable that I now realize after this panel that actually it's probably the most important question that's just been asked because I feel (laughs) uncomfortable. And as we said, Teresa, uncomfortable feelings are probably because there's something in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I actually want to talk about skills. To me, um, and going back to what Irshad was saying about, you know, I mean, The truth is, as an organization, it's all about talent. Can you recruit the talent? There isn't enough talent out there, and there's huge competition. And the best talent is what's going to make the difference to your organization, especially in the city. It's not about finance anymore. Everybody's got access to capital in one way or another. It's about can you get the best people and the people who can deal with what Theresa was saying about all the disruption that we're going to see. And that's what's going to make uh, organizations change.
1: Great thank you so i 'm going to take the easy
6: question first about whether or not the lessons that we will
1: learn will replicate in other places, and I think behavioral science as a discipline is what we call weird, so it 's western educated, industrialized rich developed countries are really the focus of ninety five percent of the research that we have. So I think the answer is, yes, I'm hopeful that they will replicate in other countries outside of the UK, for example. Um, But I'm really looking forward to finding out, to actually doing research in the field. I think if we move industries, we have to really bear in mind what the proportion of individuals are within particular occupations. So financial and professional services is a really interesting occupation. And for simplicity, I'll take gender. But in the pipeline, we do have enough women. We just lose them as we go um, go along the pipeline. So whether or not we can take those lessons to tech is again something that we have to work out but I'm really looking forward to trying and when I kind of think about what's next, so the idea that inclusion is, is, is totally resolved, um, I think that maybe people do feel happier at work, but I really don't think that all voices get heard equally. And I do think that there are people, particularly we spoke about introverts tonight, but there are other ways that we can actually slice the data where you do see people having these really fantastic ideas that don't necessarily get heard. And I think within the next three years I manage to resolve that. I'm really looking forward to thinking about what's next. So
0: thank you. Very good. So I'm going to say one thing on the love question, which is um, at LSE we've got a lot of people doing research on well-being and happiness. And the overwhelming conclusion of that research is that the number one determinant of people social being happy is the quality of their social relationships. And I think love is a big part of that. It's also interesting finding that one of the times that people are least happy is when they're talking to their boss. <laughs> Clearly, we need to inject a bit more love love in those relationships. So um, I wanted to thank you all for coming. I wanted to especially thank our panelists for a fascinating conversation. I think I would also just say watch this space. The Inclusion Initiative will launch in November. We'll be generating lots more interesting research, and we very much hope that we can engage everyone here in those findings and in this important agenda. Also, do come to more of the LSE Festival. It runs until Saturday, and please feel free to pick up a program, and we very much welcome you to come to as many, as possible <laughs>